Do you have a tricky work problem that you need to solve? I have a great podcast recommendation for you featuring a pair of expert women. Whether you're just starting your career or a seasoned professional, check out Fixable, a podcast from TED. Hosted by Harvard professor Frances Fry and her wife, leadership coach Ann Morris, the brilliant duo provide honest, actionable advice to help you navigate everything from a gaslighting manager to returning to work after parental leave. They'll leave you feeling empowered and ready to act. Listen to Fixable wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to episode 132 of the Bossed Up Podcast. I'm your host, Emily Aries, and I just want to give a major shout out and huge thanks to all the badass bosses who I have met along the course of the Bossed Up book tour. It has been such an exciting trip from coast to coast, starting here in Denver, heading out to D.C. and the East Coast. So many people I met in the Midwest, my West Coast bosses who really came out to support the book and just wrapping things up with a bonus book tour stop in Boulder, Colorado last Thursday. I cannot thank you enough for all the ways you've supported this book. And I'm loving hearing your early feedback. So if you're diving into the early chapters of the Bossed Up book now, I want to hear about it. Make sure to tag me on social at Emily Aries or at Bossed Up Org, and we can keep the conversation going that way. And if you or your organization or any conferences you're headed to soon, or even your book club are looking for a speaker or want to chat with me directly or have me virtually beam into your book club to discuss the Bossed Up book, I am always game for that kind of work. Just head to emilyaries.com speaking to learn more. Now, today's episode has been a long requested topic that I'm so excited to jam on with y'all because this elusive quality of executive presence has always been kind of confusing when it's come up in the research, right? We know that assertive women are deemed less likable and sometimes even less capable, but also you have to be assertive and you have to be powerful and strong and commanding to garner respect. It's like tap dancing on a tightrope. It's like trying to please everybody all the time and make it look easy it's exhausting. And one of the terms that comes up in the research on all this often, like time and time again, often in the Harvard Business Review and other business-oriented publications is executive presence. Women with executive presence who give off that can-do attitude, who inspire trust and leadership are the ones who get promoted and who get respect and authority and all those you know, soft skill benefits and some major benefits like pay increases and promotions as well. But what the fuck is executive presence? (laughs) Like, what does that actually mean? I've had many women comment on our social media and also talk about this in the Courage community on Facebook. By the way, if you're not part of it, join the Bossed Up Courage community on Facebook. It's the best place on Facebook. I'll drop a link in today's show notes. But oftentimes the question is like, well, how the hell do I cultivate that? And that is the wonderful question that spurred today's discussion. Take a listen. Hi, Emily. It's Alyssa Harder calling from Chicago. I've been an engineer and getting my MBA at a STEM company for the last nine years. And I was recently accepted into a talent development program at my company. During our last workshop, We got feedback, and mine was that I need to work on my executive presence. 
I tried to do some research after the after the workshop, and I feel like I dress above average and I carry myself well when I do public speaking, but I'm really struggling with how to improve. If you could tackle executive presence, I would be really greatly appreciative. Thank you. This is such a great question. I am so glad you called in with this career conundrum because you also gave me an excuse to bring on one of my new favorite career coach pals in the industry, Ashley Stahl. Ashley is a career coach who helps job seekers mainly via online programs and one-on-one coaching in finding their purpose, landing more job offers, and launching their dream businesses. Prior to being an entrepreneur, Ashley was an award-winning counterterrorism professional who helped government officials prepare for the front lines of the war on terror. But life in the Pentagon couldn't hold a candle to Ashley's passion for career leadership, so she created the Job Offer Academy, an online program that helped more than 5,000 job seekers in 31 countries in landing a new job they love. Each week on the U-Turn podcast, Ashley features expert interviews and conversations designed to help you upgrade your confidence in work, love, and life. Ashley, I'm so honored to have you on the Boss podcast today. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here. You are such a fun person to talk to. I feel like you have so much to offer your own audience. It's going to be so fun to jam. Uh, you're such a delight. And just for listeners, to give them a little background, uh, sneak peek into our coming together. I have to acknowledge that sometimes DMing your online friends and people you admire on Instagram actually works, right? <laughs> totally. <laughs> I saw on Instagram a couple of weeks ago, you were coming to Boulder for something. And I was like, Boulder's 20 minutes from my house. Let me just reach out and see if we can grab coffee. And we did. And it was such a delight. It was such a delight. And I think you did something that a lot of people don't think to do. Like you offered to come to me and it was such a no brainer of like, this looks like a fun human and she's going to come to me. Like I have nothing to lose. And that's such a great thing because not everybody is as lovely as you, although I wish they were. And so I think saying you're going to come to somebody kind of offsets that fear that I think a lot of people have where they're like, am I going to make an effort for something that feels like the biggest black pit of my time ever? Right. And when you take that off of the table, it's such a beautiful networking thing. Yeah. And it just, it made me feel like a lot of our listeners at the Boss Up podcast community do, which is, you know, can I network with someone who is killing it in my field and who I might feel like, oh my gosh, we're competitors. or I might feel intimidated by all the incredible work you've done. And I was like, fuck it. I'm just reaching out. <laughs> 100%. You know, and sometimes you just got to do that at every stage of your career. Totally. Yeah. And I totally think that this idea of competitor is so interesting because I'm in a group of friends in LA and these are some of the most powerful coaches I know. And they're just such beautiful souls. And it's interesting because I'm just watching my career go up because of our right. connection and I'm not in the friendship because of career. We just get each other and just having their presence in my life has elevated my career in so many ways. Opportunities I never even thought were possible or accessible float over to me like a bird in the sky. Like it's just so easy. And I'm yeah. realizing community is such a hack and such a shortcut for creating a dreamy life beyond just friendship and connection. And I just think like women, yes, it's a real thing that we have to like be mindful of our business and not just totally throw like all of the bones at somebody who is actually a competitor. And it's like, how can we be more collaborative and connect and support each other? Right. Oh my gosh. Such a good point. And Friedman, who co-hosts the Call Your Girlfriend podcast calls this shine theory. Like mm-hmm. when you shine, when my friends shine, I shine. 
And it's yes. so true, right? Yes. I love that. So clearly you and I have lots to talk about. I think your work over the years has been awesome, especially with the U-Turn, Y-O-U-Turn podcast that you host. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about how you got into career advice and, and job search help for folks. Mm. You know, I grew up in a house where the news was always on. And from a young age, my dad kind of exposed me to what was happening in the world. So I always kind of thought I'd do something in the government, maybe be a diplomat or something like that. But I truly believe that when you follow what feels good, your purpose is on the periphery of that or right in front of you. And I learned that through experience. But at the time in college, just like anybody, I was asked to pick a major and, you know, it's like, I don't even know who I am, let alone what I want to commit my career to. So I just did what anyone would. I looked at the list and picked things that sounded interesting. Right. And because I was afraid of committing, I picked three majors, the only graduating triple major of the class, wow. which other people praised me. But really, I just told them, this is commitment phobia that you're all praising me for <laughs> right. with these three majors and ended up, you know, putting a lot of myself into pursuing a career in government and in counterterrorism. And after a really rough road with the recession of not being able to get a job, being an admin assistant, being underpaid, and then being courageous and moving to DC on a whim learning how to job hunt, getting all of these job offers. And truly this was after, you know, my first job making minimum wage, not being able to get a job, taking what I could get, sleeping on my parents' couch, something like a fire lit inside of me. And I was like, I'm going to learn how to get a job. And one day I ended up emailing my university saying, Hey, could you send me a list of everybody who has ever moved to Washington, D.C. and graduated from this college? They sent me a list of 2,000 people, and I just worked my way through that call list on my lunch breaks in my admin assistant job. So you can imagine, you know, like most jobs in D.C. lend themselves to privacy. So pretty awkward to be calling, you know, a lot of intelligence professionals being like, hi, you don't know me, but I would need a job, you know. And so I totally fell on my face, and I learned how to talk to people. So like I said, it's like when you follow what feels good. So what felt good was getting out of my admin job, but not just the reactivity of that, but getting into a path that I pursued, although there was some part of me that already knew, I don't know if I meant for counterterrorism. So I was kind of just on this path of like, you know what, I'm just doing the best that I can do with what I know right now. And that's all you could ever do is be where you are with what you know. And what I knew was that although counterterrorism didn't feel like the right career for me, I knew that I had the degree in it. I learned the languages. And that I just wanted to be in a leadership role as best I could. And on the periphery of pursuing a career in counterterrorism was this journey I started to have with learning how to land a job, learning how to get a job. And after falling flat on my face with hundreds of phone calls, I started to learn how to talk to people as anybody does with success, right? Like you fail your way there. And Mm -hmm. it's like, they're all in the same neighborhood, failure and success. So Eventually, people started really listening to me. Eventually, I started understanding how to talk to people. And that translated into me getting multiple job offers in a six-week job hunt, leveraging all of them, tripling my salary, which when you're making around minimum wage isn't necessarily the craziest thing, but I felt crazy. I was like, That's oh my amazing, God. regardless. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Like, and I went from making you know minimum wage in Los Angeles to six figures in a management job at the Pentagon of all places. So Damn. going from an admin assistant to a management leadership role was just such a huge leap. Nonetheless, in six weeks, it taught me your life can change. You can move cities, you can make a decision and everything can change. And I've been so in touch with my freedom ever since that. And I fully yeah. believe that having job hunt skills is the golden ticket to your career because 
no longer are you beholden to anyone or anywhere when you have that skill set. So that inspired me. I'm always sort of blown away when I hear your story of of the strange parallels to mine because I started in campaigns and elections and it wasn't until I was on steady financial footing that I could even see what was on the horizon, right? Which was Mm. a career helping other people with their careers. But what I love about what you're saying is that your ability to get a job is different, a different skill set than the ability to do well at that job. Oh, yeah. Just like your ability to do your job and the good performance review you got is on one metric, but the skill set that is persuading others or convincing others of your capacity and having executive presence, which is really all about communicating your skills, that's a totally different skill set, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It really, really is. And I think that the person who is able to move the room, because according to research, the most memorable feeling you can give someone is captivation. So a lot of people would think like the most memorable feeling might be, you know, love or or acceptance or whatever. But according to research, that's not memorable. What's memorable is if you can create a sense of awe in somebody and that comes from cap- creating captivation. That's a great point. And you've done quite a bit of public speaking. And, and I wonder, you know, what have you learned over the years in preparing yourself to captivate a room? Mm, I would say ultimately it's being mindful in advance. So for yeah. example, your elevator pitch, no matter where you go, it's the most common question you're going to get, whether you're networking or you're in interviews is tell me about yourself or some version of that. And so I think being intentional and thinking about that in advance and kind of practicing that, not because you're being fake and you're so contrived, but because you're being intentional and you want to think about how you're delivering yourself to the world. I'm a big geek when it comes to storytelling. Mm-hmm. and part of my training program for all of Bossed Up's trained trainers, like our certified trainers that we feature at programs all over the country, is each and every one of them works with me to really hone their story of self, which comes straight out of the organizer campaign world that I that I started in. And it's all about that narrative arc, like the beginning, the middle, the end, the challenges you've faced the choices you made in response to those challenges and what it taught you as a way to introduce yourself and, and explain why you're here. You just illustrated that beautifully by mm. you know sharing the challenges of the post-college recession life, the choices you made to then triple your salary and how that positions you to do what you do today. I mean, that's a perfect synopsis that I think we all can learn from. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, honestly, how to talk about myself has been such a gift because the more I think about it in advance, the more I keep using it. And sometimes I'm like, oh, I wish my story was different. I'm bored of my own story, but it's like, this is my story. You know, it's the truth. What would you advise someone in terms of practicing her elevator pitch or like really turning that pitch into presence? Mm -hmm. Well, I would say the first step of a really good elevator pitch, and this is something, you know, that I've just really led with and anything I've ever created, like whether it's the Job Offer Academy, anything, it's like really knowing your story, really getting connected to the why of why you're doing what you're doing. Because just like Simon Sinek says, people don't care about what you do as much as why you do it. And Mm -hmm. that is such a key in creating a sense of captivation for people. And so I think for you, when you think about your story, it's, are you able to take the career you're interested in, whether it's the industry or the skill set you're using and link it back to early stages of your life and the roots of your life Mm. and where 
might have shown evidence that you had an interest or an ability in that area. So for example, maybe you want to be an engineer today. When you were a kid, were you like breaking computers apart and putting them back together? That's a very compelling story. So it's like drawing your career interest to back to your roots, I think is really powerful. Yeah. And it sounds to me like what you're talking about is the content of mm-hmm. somebody's story and someone's elevator pitch. How about the style with which they share it? Because I think a big part of executive presence has to do with how you're read, how you look, right? The mm-hmm. vibe you're giving off. And while I hate to, you know, police women's speech or presence, and I would never want to say like the way you show up in the world is not inherently good. There are ways to command more of a presence, Right. I mean, um, you know, what first comes to mind for me is Amy Cuddy's research. Have you come across her TED yeah, Talk? The power poses, yeah. Yeah. And her book, Presence, is really all about how to take up more space with those power poses, like my favorite, the Wonder Woman, and how that can change the entire energy that you bring into a room. What's your take mm. on that? Yeah, I think that body language is a really big deal and people are either making themselves smaller or making themselves bigger just based on how they're standing in the room. And I think our subconscious mind is so programmed to be able to pick up on these cues, whether we're aware that we're picking up on them or not. But, you know, think about all the times you talk to somebody and for whatever the reason, you have no reason not to trust them, but there's something inside you that says no. And I think that's body language, but what it's also about is congruence. So I think that our, you know, for me coming from counterterrorism in my early 20s, yeah. it's like one of the biggest things I learned both in national security and intelligence and in personal development is that it's all about looking for incongruence. And so I think that when it comes to communication, body language, we're always subconsciously shopping for any indicators that we're not safe. That's how our ego is wired is to make sure we're safe in a situation. And part of that means looking at our environment, looking at the people we're talking to and seeing if they are congruent in the way that they're communicating and the way that they're holding themselves. And do you mean congruent like their message of, hey, I'm happy to be here and their smile with their body language like exactly my body language doesn't look like I'm happy to be here <laughs> totally exactly or even me on this podcast right like right. like my tone like I'm, I'm happy to be talking to you and I'm excited and it's people can feel that I think if I'm like yeah I'm happy to be here but really it's like no I'm not you know people can yeah. pick up on that and then what happens they listen to this and for whatever the reason maybe the content was good but they don't like me for some reason or they feel right. less after the interview they don't feel as energetic and you know that's from my own incongruence that's carrying and being transferred over to them. I like that way of looking at it because it almost makes the case for self-care as Mm -hmm. a part of your professional strategy. So when you show up well-rested, when you show up excited, when you show up not stressed about the drama playing out in the rest of your life, you can show up with more presence. You can show up in a way that reads, you know, open, positive, productive. That probably doesn't sound very comforting to someone Mm -hmm. who's dealing with a lot of drama in their life right now. But it's kind of back to the argument that I always find myself making when talking about, you know, the bossed up way of living, which is taking care of yourself is obviously a moral imperative. It's good for you. But it's also a strategic one. It's good for your career. Um, Mm. So it's worth it to get your shit together, which is Mm -hmm. the subtitle of my book, right? It's worth (laughs) it to take care of yourself because it'll make you do what you do better. Yeah, definitely. And like, I actually feel like you saying this is really moving because people who aren't, you know, 
aware of our conversation before we start recording. So those of you listening to this amazing woman, it's like, before we start recording, I found out she was, you know, her assistant was saying she would send me a zoom link so we could do video. And I texted you, Emily, and said, Oh, I don't like doing video. Do we have to do it? And you were so receptive to me saying like, you're like, Oh no, we don't have to at all. It's podcast. We can just do audio. And I think that that conversation just shows the awareness we both have because in my sense, it's like, wow, after years of being in my own career, both in the workforce and as an entrepreneur now, career coaching, business coaching, whatever have you, it's like, I've learned so much about myself. And what I've learned is there's a few things in business that just completely zap my spirit out of me and make me more miserable, you know, like, and it's like, I can be empowered, but I think in personal development, there's a lot around people saying, Hey, if you feel bummed or you feel down, that's on you. And I think that's true, but it also I think there's an opportunity to say, oh, well, if you feel bummed or down, sometimes there's certain things you're doing that just don't match you. And you don't have to work on you. You don't have to release that. You don't have to question your beliefs about that. You can just say, this doesn't work for me. And it's so beautiful because being able to text you and be like, oh, video is like one of the things I avoid in business. And you being like, great. I'm so glad you know that about yourself. Let's just get on audio. It was like, Great. And I wish it were that easy for folks who have to show up in a workplace though, right? Yeah. Because this is the the glory of being our own bosses as we totally. can decide those things. But yeah. you know, the fact that being on camera or being seen by your colleagues is draining is mm-hmm. so relatable because it's not just about presence, it's about perception. And perception mm-hmm. isn't hundred percent in our control. How mm-hmm. people perceive us is by no means hundred percent in our control, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it depends. First of all, I think some people aren't even meant to be in the workforce. So I think the first bigger question is like a, a key distinction that I've been kind of tinkering with on my own podcast on U-Turn is like, I just did an episode talking about freedom versus flexibility and how I think mm. that people who feel a lot of pain because they don't have time freedom, those are the ones that I'm like, okay, I have a few other questions for you because you might just meant to be meant to be a business owner and you just might need to work through your fear. Whereas I think a lot of people in the workforce just crave flexibility and it's not that they need to be an entrepreneur. They just really need a corporate culture that supports their flexibility and their core values. And I think a lot of people first haven't taken the time to say, what are my core values? What what are the top five words, whether it's family, balance, wellness, growth, learning, authenticity, like humor, like what are my top five things that without those things, I'm not me. And sometimes when when people think about core values, they think about what they wish they were. They're aspirational. Like my core value is peace. And I'm like, no, it's not. You're not peaceful. (laughs) You need to be what you are naturally. So it's like people thinking about that and then being able to ask themselves those bigger questions of, am I even meant for the workforce? And if I am, maybe I just need a job that has flexibility to honor the fact that this is a function I don't want to play, but I'm great and I'm skilled in this other area, you know, stuff like that. And the labor involved in finding that job in advocating for that flexibility is real, but it's worth it. And I think, you know, some people think, well, there's no way I can ever do this. You know, I'm a cybersecurity consultant or I'm a admin assistant. There's no way I can get a lunch break. There's no way I can get Fridays at home. And that to me can feel extremely real. But if you believe those, those limiting thoughts, it's going to prevent you from looking for what you're looking for. It's going to prevent Mm -hmm. you from even trying to see what's negotiable. And if it's not negotiable at your current workplace, it doesn't mean it's not negotiable elsewhere. Yeah, exactly. And I think that some people just buy into, as anyone would, stories in their head that things are fixed and that situations aren't fluid and moving because they are. That's more of the reality, I think. 
thinking about like having the confidence, which I think is an overused term, but courage or confidence to ask for what we want to have that sort of exude that presence that we want to exude. How have you cultivated that over time and begun to internalize that identity? She doesn't want to just put on a mask. She yeah. doesn't want to put up a front. She wants to internalize what I write about as like her boss identity, this sense of executive presence that comes from a place of deep, calm confidence. Have you mm-hmm. developed that over time? Have you helped people work on that too in the job search process? Yeah, definitely. And just like confidence coaching, it's one of my favorite things in the world because it's such deep work. And I think the first thing for her when she's thinking about executive presence or for anybody listening to this that's thinking about their confidence is if she were to write down on a piece of paper, I don't have executive full executive presence yet because I'm curious what she believes. I'm curious what the reasons are that she would argue she doesn't have that because that's the work that that's the limiting beliefs because I don't have enough experience. Well, that's a limiting belief, right? So it's like, first is like really her exploring what is that, what's on that bridge of where you're at and why you don't think you're where you need to be allegedly. What are the things you're telling yourself about that? What are you buying into? Because that's, I think, where the forgiveness is and being able to mm-hmm. really look at the truth. And I'm sure you read this, Emily, because you're so well-read, I feel like. But Byron Katie's work, Loving What Is, and her book is really powerful, I think, for releasing beliefs like that that hold you back. I haven't, so I'll have to check that out. I feel like executive presence, though, to me, as I mentioned before we started recording, it's such a squishy thing. Yes, it has something to do with our internal beliefs, our sense of self, and our internal identity. But it also has to do with how the world views us. And the world doesn't mm. view everybody the same way because the world's full of injustice and bias. <laughs> and so what I hear mm-hmm. is you've got to work on your executive presence, but I have no advice as to how exactly. I can imagine how frustrating that kind of feedback must be to hear and wonder if women can enlist the help of other colleagues and say, you know, check my body language, check my vocal tone, you know, Give me some feedback on what I'm saying here or if I'm being too agreeable and not assertive enough. You know, those are sort of specific tactics that I've seen really help women develop that assertive presence through risk taking, right? Through changing up mm-hmm. how we're talking, how we're communicating, how we're being more assertive in everyday interactions. But it takes that feedback loop that's mm-hmm. more constructive. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that ultimately there's your personal self and your professional self. And this is something I learned from a guy named Steve Chandler, who's a great coach. And he kind of explains that your personal self comes from your upbringing. Like the desire to be liked is probably what it's driven by the most. And we're taught that at a very young age to be a good girl, be a good boy. Don't make any problems. Were you good today? Like what what kind of question are we asked when we get picked up from school? Were you good today? Very common question. So I think that your personal self is so conditioned, your social self, is so conditioned to, for likability. And when we get into the workforce, I think some people are driving with their social self. And that is one of the most damaging things you could do because sometimes you have to choose between the desire to be liked and the desire to be respected. And it's not to say that you can't have both, but sometimes you do have to make a choice. And yeah. that's when your professional self kicks in. And I think a lot of people would get a lot of value out of thinking about like, who do they want to be professionally? Because, you know, the same, the root of authentic and author are very similar Latin roots, you know, and I think that there is something very authentic about authoring who you are 
in the world and being intentional about it. I think a lot of people think, oh, I'm not going to come up with this professional identity. But it's like, well, if you don't come up with it, then you're just letting your social self who wants to be liked drive. And that's not inspiring. Like be as powerful as you can. And that means set aside wanting to be like and start standing for who you want to be, period. And whether people like you or not, if you're in that intentionality, to me, that's power. So it's like for executive presence, it's like pulling out a piece of paper and saying, who do I want to be? Right. What is a powerful presence? What would the most classy leadership empowered woman look like? Right. Yeah. And just think about sort of how I want to be known by others mm-hmm. too. And like, how can I begin to construct that, that vision, that identity of who I am? Mm-hmm. I love what you're saying about likability because it actually reminds me of the very first debut episode of this podcast from March, 2018, which I had uh, Sarah Green Carmichael, who was the editor of the Harvard Business Review on. The title of the episode is To Lead or Be Liked. And it's all about the compromises that women especially have to make when it comes to the leadership likability double bind women face in the workplace. And it's, it's to date our most popular episode <laughs> for a reason, mm-hmm. just because the world doesn't view everyone the same and we have different biases that we're up against doesn't mean we have to construct our identity always centered on likability and reacting mm-hmm. to others. Um, mm-hmm. Because you're right, respect, if you want to earn someone's respect, which I think is part and parcel with having that executive presence. Sometimes it means acting in a way that might risk likability points, brownie points, you know, Girl Scout support points. (laughs) And it's really about being assertive and clear and establishing a vision and communicating that vision. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I think that, um, I can't remember who has this quote. I think it might be Thoreau or Emerson, where it said, like, most men are silently begging to be led. And I mean, back in the day of those quotes, they always quoted (laughs) men. I think it's all the same. Yeah. Um, So I think that most people are silently or desperately begging to be led. And if you think about it, think about the menu at Cheesecake Factory. It's like 30 pages. I remember the first time I ever went there, I was like, I'm begging to be led. Like, what do I order? I can't go through this 30 page menu. So it's like on the small levels of your life. Think about when you're at a restaurant with too many things on the menu. It's like, sometimes you just want people to tell you what to go do. And I think that leaders, it's not about usurping power and being fascist and taking over. You're with us or against us. But I think it's about being someone that can really step into decision-making and Tony Robbins says like, that's one of the most powerful traits of a leader is that they're decisive. And what is it when somebody's not, it's they're wobbling because there's a lack of confidence most often. Yeah. I mean, I think of a leader who says, well, what do you think we should do? Mm -hmm. And nobody is inspired (laughs) by that. And it's tricky, right? Because a small D democratic way of leadership, encouraging engagement from the bottom up is great. And I think women leaders, especially have really changed the paradigm of leadership as being something that's much more democratic, diplomatic, and inclusive. But that doesn't mean it doesn't require decisiveness and communicating a vision. I think it was actually on To Lead or Be Liked that Sarah Green Carmichael mentioned, of all the leadership characteristics out there, women are rated higher than men on everyone except clarifying their vision and communicating a clear vision. So I think that's a good point. Something we all can work on is being decisive and being unapologetic about communicating that decisiveness. 
Mm-hmm, exactly. And I think a lot of, you know, in the same way that I could do that exercise with the person that called in saying they want executive presence and filling in the blank of, I don't have it yet because mm. it's like, I'm not decisive because, or I'm scared of stepping into decisions because, and a lot of the times it's because we're afraid of what people are going to think. And so the work is really internal of releasing that and realizing you're worthy, you're amazing, and you're doing the best you can, regardless of what people think. And that's the work, you know? Yeah, I love that. So tell us about a time when you wavered on that, (laughs) when that Mm -hmm. was hard for you and how did you overcome it? Yeah. I mean, gosh, when was it difficult for me to speak up? I think honestly around money, it's been, and this is in my personal life as well as my professional life, something that's been really hard for me to speak up. It's not about me asking for my rates as a coach or for people who buy my courses or anything like that. But in my personal life, I would say I struggle. Like, for example, there's so many times, and I think a lot of people have this, I'm out to dinner with friends and somebody will order like a bottle of Dom Perignon or something crazy. And I will just have like chicken noodle soup. And we've all been in that situation where the bill comes and everybody's throwing their credit card in. And I spent like $5 and other people spent like 200. Yeah. So for the longest time, as I was kind of iterating and calibrating with financial responsibility, I wouldn't speak up and I would just kind of suck it up. And I remember, you know, early in the early days of my business that really affected my finances, like a dinner that really should have cost me like 10 bucks would cost me like 100 or 200 dollars in a night out with a bunch of people. And I didn't want to be the squeaky wheel. So the judgment that I worked through was that I'm an inconvenience or that I'm a burden or that I'm Mm. taking by saying, Hey, can I just uh, like pay for my own? So if I did my own exercise, it'd be like, I can't say anything because, because they're going to think that I'm an inconvenience, that it's going to take their time for the bill to be separated accordingly, because they're going to think that I'm broke or that I'm weird or that, you know, that I'm, I don't know, nitpicky or nickel and diming the situation. But what I realized ultimately, and of course, this is beyond just the healing work. So forgiving myself for buying into the belief that my friends are going to judge me if I'm being financially responsible and realizing the truth is that it's inspiring that I'm financially responsible. And anytime I step into the best version of me, other people are also called forward in a way if they want to join me in doing that for themselves too, if that's something they're working through. But I also realize like I only have friends at this point where I can speak the truth with and, you know, kind of just going back to our conversation earlier, it's like, how much did we both do that from the beginning of this call? I was like, I hate video. And you're like, amazing. I just love that. I love it so much that we had that because it's just a trademark for me and my friendships. I mean, true story. It was April Fool's Day. I got a text. There was a text going around that people were saying, why is there a naked photo in your Instagram story? Oh my God. That was like an April Fool's text. And I saw that. (laughs) Yeah. And one of my really good friends did it to me. Uh, She was the first one that did it. And I told her like, it was so funny because I'm so good with my boundaries and I feel so safe to communicate (laughs) with friends that love me. So I just texted her and I was like, oh, FYI, you must not know. I don't like scary movies and I don't like pranks. And and like a lot of people who might not be close to me would be like, oh my God, I feel guilty. I feel bad. I feel awkward. But because her and I are such good friends and there's safety there, she also has permission. If like, you know, like there was a time where she went to the bathroom and I ordered food and found out like she doesn't like that food. Right. And it's like, I didn't go into a story of like, oh, I feel so bad. That's so annoying of me. Or It's like, there's enough safety in my connections. Mm. And what I've realized is that I have really powerful friendships or I don't have friendships at all. Mm. I've really connected business relationships or I don't have business relationships at all. Mm-hmm. And 
the extremeness is something that I used to say, maybe I need to be in the gray zone, but I'm noticing this is how I run my life. It, It works for me to just be a clear yes or a clear no. Yeah. I think that not only does it yield a happier life, but it's also attractive in a way, like it attracts the right people. You know what I mean? It it says like, this is someone who's not waffling, who's not compromising on her values. And that speaks volumes. Thank you. And just as an aside, I recently tweeted on April Fool's Day that quote, I'm embarrassingly earnest and 1000% gullible. So April Fool's is always a bit of an emotional roller coaster for me. So if you're feeling the same way, know that you're not alone. I make no apologies for being trusting. (laughs) And people responded to it because there's a lot of us who actually aren't fond of an April Fool's Mm. joke. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, totally. Well, Ashley, I just want to thank you again for sharing your time and your expertise and your advice with our caller and with all of our Bossed Up podcast listeners. Where can our community keep up with you? Ah, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Um, I would say... I'm always on the gram at Ashley Stahl, A-S-H-L-E-Y-S-T-A-H-L, or on my podcast, U-Turn. So it's U-Y-O-U and then two words, turn. And it's my place to go and talk about mindset, work, and love with experts every week. And it's such a joy. Thank you so much for having me here. For more on Ashley Stahl and the topics we covered in today's podcast, head to bossedup.org slash episode 132. And now it's time for this week's Boss Move Moment of the Week. Emily, this is Anne. I'm from Georgia, and I wanted to tell you about my boss moves of the week. I am an author and a blogger, and one of the biggest boss moves I've ever made was to start my own podcast on Anchor. It is called Inspirational Journeys, and I'm working on getting it on all of the platforms that Anchor supports right now. Yes, boss, we are cheering you on, and I am so proud of you. Thanks for sharing your boss move of the week because it inspires me to keep doing what I'm doing here, and you never know who else needed to hear from you today. So thank you for inspiring others by sharing your come-up story. If you have a boss move to share or a career conundrum you want me to break down on the podcast next, we are looking for more topics and suggestions from y'all right now. So call them into the podcast hotline at 910-668-BOSS or 2677. And thank you for all the ways in which you support this podcast. You are active members of this incredible community of courage. I loved meeting so many of you on tour and hearing your early feedback in the book these past couple of weeks has been such a delight. So keep in touch as you keep reading. Take some book selfies. I will always chime in and comment and share you on or share what you're writing about. And I'm always happy to engage in conversation directly with listeners and readers like you. And if by any chance you have yet to pick up your copy of the Bossed Up book, head to bossedup.org slash booked to learn more about all the wonderful booksellers who can hook you up with your own hardcover copy and hear what others are saying about the book. Until next time, keep bossing in pursuit of your purpose and together we'll lift as we climb. Let's face it, speaking up at work can be really hard to do, especially for women and women of color. When the stakes are high and you've already worked so hard to just be the only woman in the room and you want to get everything right, you want to have all your facts and figures accurate before making your voice heard, it's just so much easier to stay silent instead. 
Researcher Deb Jahansky calls this loss of voice phenomenon. And it actually emerges in adolescent women at greater rates than men. And it sticks with us for the rest of our lives. Self-silencing behavior can actually become an unconscious habit unless we consciously engage in practicing our assertive communication skills. And we here at Bossed Up have set out to help women like you do just that. Speak Up, my live assertive communication course is back open for enrollment, and we're kicking off a new cohort launching this June. Over the course of eight life-changing weeks, you'll have access to interactive online curriculum and live weekly practice sessions where you, Irene and I, and a cohort of fellow Speak Up bosses who are owning their voice, overcoming the social messages that have taught us to keep silent, and really learning to strategically and assertively communicate when it matters most, we'll actually have the practice time to rewire our brains, create new neural pathways, and build better habits when it comes to speaking up with confidence and precision and assertively communicating in the workplace. Learn more and enroll today to secure your spot at bossedup.org speakup. That's bossedup.org speakup.